Um, if you could just take this time to silence your phones, I'm happy you made it here in person. Um, it's time to celebrate and make much of our God. Let's take advantage of this time to worship. We're here from 5 to 6.30. Um, and, oops, sorry. Let us do these things together in praying, hearing the word of God, taking communion with fellow believers, and singing. And don't let this time get away from you with distractions. But first, let me get you familiar with this room. The girls' room is to the left of me, the right of you. The men's is to the right, your left. The back, there's tea, coffee, water, help yourself. And then the bookstore will be open after service. And then also, if you want to give an offering, there is a black box, or you can give online at eternalcity.org. And we are also here to multiply passionate love for Jesus Christ and those made in his image. And we do this by making disciple, making disciples, unifying people, training and challenging men to lead sacrificially, and equipping women for ministry. Planning churches, planning churches. Thank you. I'll be, there we go, there's some amplification. Good to see all of you, and I am happy that the Steeler game got postponed till tomorrow, because I think we'd be less in number than we are now. However, as is custom at Eternal City, as the minutes roll forward and the songs roll forward, the seats magically fill up, and by the time uh, the preaching starts, we're like three or four more rows deep, and I don't know how it happens. It's, it's God's magic. So couple announcements before we get started here. Number one is January 27th starts the marriage course. Several of you have signed up. This is going to be the last week to sign up. And so if you've been thinking about it and you haven't pulled the trigger yet, I would encourage you to do so. Here's why. Um, this, is, this is kind of a 6 to 8.30. It's, it's a big commitment. But this is not just someone lecturing like a sermon or, or a talk at, at a university. Uh, this is interaction between you and your spouse, and it's guided. This is not a big group discussion. Um, this is between you and your spouse working through specific issues. Uh, the way it's formatted is there's dinner provided every time that we meet, and you will be across the table from your spouse, separated from everyone else, so that you can work out the issues. Um, and I would encourage you, if, if you think like, well, I've got a pretty strong marriage, um, this can just strengthen what is already strong. You don't have to have a, a marriage on the brink of divorce to be able to come to this course. Um, in fact, my wife and I are going and I would say we have a decent marriage, but we want our marriage to get better and to get stronger. And so uh, my wife and I will be here and are hoping to grow because of our being here. And so, again, if you haven't signed up, we would love for you to sign up and need you to sign up um, this week and so that we can plan well and we can execute well. Uh, in addition to needing you to sign up to attend and participate, we also need helpers. And so the helpers will, will cook, the helpers will set up, the helpers will do childcare, um, and, and this is all needed. And so as we are a body, like 1 Corinthians 12 says, each body part works together to benefit the whole. And so uh, some of you have already signed up to be a part of the helping team, and we appreciate that. And so those are the two things. One, you can sign up to take the course. Two, you can sign up to help those taking the course, whether in childcare, food preparation, uh, and setup. And so please, 
Um, there's Debbie and Jerome. You can put your hands up there. Please talk to them. If you have questions about what this will be like, uh, we will have a curriculum that will have a video, and then there's a workbook to work through, and everyone will be working at the same pace. And uh, our hope and prayer is that our marriages on the whole will rise and improve. And what that will do is strengthen the entire church. If the marriages are strong, then we have the capacity to strengthen other marriages that are not strong. And I believe it's God's purpose for us into the future, not only in 2024, but 25 and 26, as long as God would have us exist as a church, that we would be about strengthening marriages because that's God's design from chapter one of Genesis. Okay? And so, again, please sign up. We would love for you to participate or to serve. Uh, if you have any questions, see Debbie and Jerome, and they'll fill you in uh, with more details. Okay, family meal is uh, in two weeks, and we are going to do something new with family meal this year. What we've noticed, as we've observed last year, is that those family meals that were highly anticipated and highly promoted got tons of not only engagement, but also donations of food. And so we're gonna cut back family meals to once a quarter. Boo or, okay, this is half and half, okay. Here's, here's the logic, okay. We will have more time to plan and promote if we cut them back from every single month. And what we've seen is even the ones that we've skipped a month and then promoted uh, for a month, they were highly uh, enjoyed and donated to and you all participated in. Okay, so that is, that is the deal. So this month is going to be quarter one. Q1 is going to be January 28th, the last Sunday of the month. For those of you who are new, uh, we for the past year practiced a family meal every last Sunday of the month throughout really almost the last two years. And so uh, in order to improve, we'll see how it goes. This is kind of a test year to see if this is better. Uh, we're going to cut it back to once a quarter. And uh, good news, in 2024, in July, actually July 20th, will be our 10-year anniversary at Eternal City Church, which is a phenomenal that we have seen much ministry happen in 10 years. And not only that we still exist as a church, but that God is adding to His church those who are being saved, baptized, and members. Uh, and so we're going to have a big event in July or August, depending on what kind of uh, planning we can get done. But anyway, uh, Jackie Robb is going to head up a planning team for that, and we're already thinking about it. And so if you would like to be on that planning team for that event, before you know it, July will be here. Okay, I know it's freezing outside right now and the icicles are forming, but before you know it, you'll be swimming because the bathing suits are already out at Target and Walmart and everywhere else fine clothing is sold, right? So trust me, it'll be here before you know it. So if you want to be a part of the planning crew that will not only plan for this 10-year anniversary, which we're going to make a big deal, but also the family meals that we will have every quarter, uh, please talk to Jackie Robb. Jackie, put your hand up. If you all could turn your heads, that's Jackie Robb. If you don't know who she is, uh, she'd be happy to inform you and include you in on the planning. Is that a name sticker I see on you, Jackie? Oh, that's good news. So uh, another thing that we're gonna start doing, which we did prior to COVID, it's a long time ago, 
decades, ages ago, is we had stickers that identified everybody and also was a, was a means of security for the kids. And we've been working over the last month behind the scenes to try to get that uh, sticker system up and running. And because I see one, that's evidence that we got it up and running. All right, so hopefully by next week, uh, we will have those rolled out for you all to have your name on your you know, chest, or if you want to hide it on the back of your hoodie right here, that would be fine too. But we can see who you are, you can see who we are, and we can match you to your kids. It's good stuff. All right. Uh, next, thank you for um, Franny. Thank you so much for offering your home. We made an announcement last week that we needed a home, and Franny and Tom volunteered. And so February 2nd at 6.30 p.m. is the next ladies' night. This is open to any lady in the church. And this is a night of food and fellowship and fun. And this is going to be on February 2nd, 6.30. And if you could let Franny know, Franny, could you put your hand up there? If you could let Franny know that you'll be attending by 128, it's family meal night, uh, that would be helpful also for planning. Okay, so we'll um, announce this next week as well. But thank you, Franny, for opening up your home. And hopefully all you ladies will join in on this ladies' night. Connected to the Grove, which is our women's ministry arm. Uh, Eternal City membership meeting. So we're going to have a meeting on the first Sunday of February. That is a Sunday, and this will be right after worship gathering. Uh, this will not be a long two-hour meeting. This will be a shorter meeting. We will have food for you because we do understand that it's, it's uh, dinner time when this meeting will be happening. It won't be dinner, but it will be enough food that you won't be hungry. And we're primarily going to talk about um, finances, building project, building uh, project funding campaign, and some other things that we're hoping to see in 2024, okay? So we're not going to run through every single ministry in the church and give you updates, but we'll give you some highlights of the major things. If you're not a member, we would also encourage you to attend so that you can see what's going on at Eternal City outside of worship gatherings that you're probably familiar with. And so please, mark this on your calendar. 2424 directly after worship gathering. We'll be aiming at 45 minutes to an hour, uh, and then you'll be, you'll be free to go home. Okay, so at this time, oh, one more announcement. We have been praying for two weeks now between 4 and uh, 4.45, just upstairs next to the nursery, and we are praying for, uh, as Tim Hunsberger would say, big ticket items, God's glory, God's movement, revival, God's blessing on our ministries. And so if you would like to be a part of this prayer ministry, which is vital and essential, please come to this building at four o'clock next Sunday. We're gonna be doing this every single Sunday. And it's right upstairs, second floor next to the nursery, and we'll be praying for 45 minutes together. So please show up. If you do have any questions, feel free to come talk to me. Come talk to Tim. Tim, you can put your hand up there. You can talk to Tim or his wife, Diana, and they'll fill you in on what this looks like. Uh, guided prayer for God's movement in our church and through our church. All right, at this time, we're going to begin to worship. So if you could all stand, we're going to read the scripture together. And immediately after reading, we're going to start the singing portion of our worship gathering. Thanks, Chase. You guys could join me in reading Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 16. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was being made in secret intricately, woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your body or in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, and when you when as yet there was none of them. Thank you. What is up, family? Everybody had a good week. We're going to jump into praise through music. We'll start off with the easy one.
your home to seek out the lost. You knew the great and terrible cost, but Jesus, your face was grace and grace alone. Help us to run the race by grace and grace alone. Help us slay our sin by grace and grace alone. And help us reach the end by grace and grace alone. Lord, just let our hearts be open to you as you speak through your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team. You all may be seated. And yeah, we're going to pray for the children before we release them. So ECC Kids is ages five through 11, and the nursery is zero to four. And both nursery and ECC Kids is staffed tonight. And so parents feel free after I'm done praying to escort your children back, my back right down the hallway, uh, last door on the right and then up the stairs. First door on the right is the nursery. Let's pray for the kids. Father, we, we thank you for the gift of children. God, we thank you that you often bring faith through families, through the passing down of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You do that through mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, Father, you have ordained and established the family to be the primary means by which the faith 
would be transferred to the next generation. God, would we play our part well in your plan? Please give us your Spirit's help. We can only transfer the truth, live it out, and repent when we fail. But God, we cannot bring spiritual life. Only you can. So we pray, would you breathe spiritual life into our children that they might be born again, that they might spiritually live. Father, would we do our part to share the good news, which is the power unto salvation, but would you do your part, Father, and breathe life into spiritual deadness, we pray, as only you can. Be with our children now as they go. Father, meet with them by your Spirit. Empower the workers and the nursery servants. God, even in the nursery, would the, would the children feel your love for them through those there? We pray, be with them as they go now. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. All right, children, you can go. Parents, if you'd like to accompany them back to their classroom or nursery, feel free. And we are going to continue in the book of Exodus. So Exodus is a long book of the Bible, and the plan is to be in Exodus probably until the summer, and then we might take a break and do another Q&A session and then perhaps pick back up in the fall. We'll see how it goes. But our plan is to hit all the major parts of Exodus, and there is a lot of major parts in this book. Um, if you look at the artwork there, it's a little hard to see on this screen, but in the back there is the Sinai Wilderness and the Sinai Desert. And so once you get into uh, the exodus from Egypt, the, the Israelites land in the Sinai Wilderness, and they, God meets with them personally, and they receive the law. And, you know, the Ten Commandments could be a month or two long series unto itself. And so again, we'll see how the series plays out. But tonight we're going to be in verses 15 through 22, the end of the chapter. Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus 1, 15 through 22. And I'll read all of it, and then we'll begin to unpack it uh, verse by verse by verse and make application. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra, the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is a dark section of Scripture. It's about death, it's about the death of children, and it's about a king who is, at this time, the most powerful king on the planet, 
who thinks himself a god and is worshipped as a god, and so he sees himself having sovereign authority over not only his people, but also the enslaved people, the Hebrews, or the children of Israel. And so, this is going to be a rough text to go through. I'm just going to warn you out front, okay? The reason that we at Eternal City choose to go through books of the Bible verse by verse by verse is because we might be tempted to skip a dark chapter like this and and say to ourselves, you know, people are suffering. They need positive and encouraging things from the pulpit. They don't need to hear about death and the death of infants. Like, we could just skip this. But no, if we're committed to God's Word, this is God's Word. And it's profitable for teaching and rebuke and instruction. And it's good for us to go through the dark parts, and it's good for us to go through the bright parts, okay? And so tonight is gonna be one of those dark parts of Scripture, and as you've experienced, if you've lived life for any amount of time, you've realized life is not all bright. Often, it gets very dark, and so Scripture is committed to reality. And so here we have one of the dark parts of Scripture. The children of Israel are enslaved now by the Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. And this was prophesied to Abraham. If you remember way back, you know, a year ago, uh, God told Abraham that your, your descendants will spend 400 years enslaved uh, by the Egyptians. That's a, that's a rough paraphrase, but, but this is prophesied that this will happen. And so this had to happen because God predicted it through his word to Abraham. And now we see it being played out. And if you remember, what, what was in the psychology of the Pharaoh to do this to this multiplying people of Israel? Well, Pete well laid it out for us last week, but if, in case you weren't here, and he said to his people, this is the Pharaoh, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so his plan is to, to oppress them and to put them to hard, hard labor so that they will not increase and so that they'll be so exhausted and so tired that they will diminish as a people and no longer be a threat to the Egyptians in case war would break out and then the Israelites would go and align themselves with the people who wanted to war with Egypt and then they would have a big problem on their hands from within. Now, as Pete, again, well laid out last week, this plan did not work. And instead, the people of Israel multiplied throughout the land. And so now, the Pharaoh has another plan. He is going to have the, the Hebrew midwives kill the babies as they're being born if they are males. Now, why would that be? Well, the males were truly the threat in two ways, okay? One, as they grew, they could become warriors. They, women didn't go to battle back in the day, okay? And even now, it's strange for a woman to be on the front lines in war. And back then, even more so. And so the men were a threat to this scared Pharaoh that if we go to war, these Hebrew men are going to align with our enemies. Number two, unfortunately, polygamy was pretty common back in the day. And so a male 
could have multiple wives and produce a massive amount of children. I'm sure you've seen those shows on Netflix of the Mormons, right? One guy can have 10 wives and produce 100 children. You're like, that's crazy. Okay, that's a reality in this time. And so the Pharaoh thinks to himself, if we can just get rid of the males, the problem will be solved. Okay, and so what happens? He pulls the midwives in, one, Sifra, or Shifra, the other, Pua. And he says, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. So this is his plan. I want you, as the baby comes out of the womb and you're assisting the Hebrews in the birth process, midwives, you could think of them as, as uh, delivery nurses. That's what we have today in, in delivery hospitals, like McGee Women's. And so the idea is if it is a male, you are to secretly, this is a secret plan, you're to either strangle the child or maybe drown the child, but this child is not to live if it's a male. And so this Pharaoh does not want this to be open and known. He wants it to be secretive at this point. Verse 22, everything changes. It comes out in the open. But at this point, it's a conspiracy. And the desire is to let it be hidden. And the male children will die. Now, interestingly, this, these two names, Shifra and Pua, they are Hebrew names. And so the ethnicity is probably these are Hebrew women. And there are hundreds of thousands of Israelites at the time. And so no doubt, there's not just two midwives. Hey, these were probably head midwives who then were over other midwives. You, know, you think of like uh, head nurses over uh, other nurses in a hospital. Okay? And so the idea is probably that they were to spread this command to the other midwives. And this is a conspiracy to eliminate the Hebrew children. Eugene Carpenter is an Exodus scholar, and he says, Pharaoh takes the prerogative of a god to himself and orders the death of the infants, even as they are in the birth process, in order to stop the increase of the Israelites. Now remember, Pharaoh thinks himself a god, and so we know only God has authority over life and death, but he, thinking himself to be a God, takes that prerogative unto himself. And I want to show you that the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have control over, listen, your life and your death. Now, if you know God as Father, and you love Him as Father, and you believe you are His dearly loved child, then that's not bad news. What's the alternative? Maybe, maybe you want to be in the Greek philosophy and Greco-Roman God world where the fates control your destiny. Is that better? Or perhaps you, with all your wisdom and intelligence and might, maybe you want to control your own destiny. It's very American. But the Bible says that God is the one who controls both the life cycle and the death of all people. But of his children, that is good news. And it should be. And if it's not good news to you, consider realigning your view with the Bible. And so what I want to do here is open up a few texts outside of Exodus and show you that this is the case. Okay, and so here's some application. Death for the Christian 
is a scary reality only in the experience. But for the Christian, because God is in control of our life and our death, then the Christian's death is simply entering into brighter light and eternal life and the presence of God. We should not fear death as Christians. Perhaps we could fear the way and the experience because it's mysterious, but we need not fear death itself because it is a, if you will, taxi to bring us to God or Uber to bring us to God. And so Job 14, 1 to 6, Job is, is speaking to God. He's lamenting here. Job has gone through tremendous suffering, losing all of his children, all of his wealth. Uh, many of his servants are dead, and he is lamenting with his friends. And in, he, in this text here specifically, verse uh, 1 to 6 of 14, he's speaking to God. And he says, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Now look at verse 5. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. Now the CSB is a, is a non-literal translation. It, it utilizes both the literal when it's helpful and the paraphrase, not so much paraphrase, but, but the phrase for phrase translation like the NIV. And so I like the way the CSB renders verse five. Since a person's days are determined and the number of his months depends on you, and since you have set limits he cannot pass, then Job says, look away from him and leave him alone. Now, our culture would love for you to think otherwise and presses you to think otherwise. But friends, here's the truth. Your days are determined, the number of your months depends on God, and He has set limits that you cannot pass. That's the truth. And again, if God is your Father, and you love Him, and He loves you, this is not bad news. The one who controls the universe also controls your life and your death, your days and your months and your years. Friends, let that be a resting place for you. Many of us fear death, and we fear all kinds of ways that we could die, right? And so the, the weatherman plays on this, right? If as soon as the snow comes, it could be a dusting, and all of a sudden there's no bread at all to eat. And you're like, what in the world? You know, there's salt trucks coming out before it even starts to snow, and, it, and the weather people are like, you're going to die, you know, because they want clicks, and they want you to tune in, and fear drives ratings. And so, uh, as Pete said last week, the, the political season is rearing up, and, and fear will be played on in ways that we've already experienced every four years, every four years, every four years, every four years. Let us not be so fearful as Christians, okay? Here's another text. Psalm 139, as Chase read earlier, the larger portion, 
David, the psalmist, speaking to God, says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. He's speaking of being in the womb. In your book were written every one of them. What? Every one of what? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so, I think what David is saying here is, God has predetermined all of our days before one of them comes to be. And again, if this God is your father and loves him, uh, and you love him and he loves you, that is not bad news. It is good news that all of my days are held in your hands as we sing. Okay? From the moment that I wake up to the time I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. That's right. Okay, Isaiah 38, 1 to 6. Hezekiah was one of the good kings. There's only a few good kings in the history of the kings. Hezekiah was one of the good ones, okay? And God actually prophesies through Isaiah that he's going to die. Now watch, this is a fascinating little section of Scripture here. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, and you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to, us, to Isaiah, Go to Hezekiah and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. Watch this. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Who do you think you are, God? Well, yes, actually. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of, of Assyria and will defend this city. Listen, only God can say something like that. At first he comes and warns Hezekiah, put your stuff in order, get your will straight, you're going to die. You're not going to recover from this sickness. And then he prays, and God, through the prayer, remember New Year's Eve, the message, through the prayer, God accomplishes his ultimate purpose, which was that Hezekiah would actually have 15 more years. He uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his will. And so God says, I'm going to give you 15 more years. Now, here's a New Testament text. This one you all know. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, be like, yo, I eat tons of spinach. I take my vitamins. I eat beetroot every single day. I'm adding months, maybe years to my life. Since you can't even add an hour to your life. And then he says, to do this little thing. In other words, for God to add an hour to your life, it is a very little thing. But for you, you're like, yo, I started drinking two gallons of water a day in 2024. Do you know how that's going to expand my life? Not beyond God's limit. Now, you might feel better and more hydrated and go to the bathroom a lot more in 2024, but you're not adding even an hour to your life. 
Now, I'm not advocating, oh, that means I could just go to Krispy Kreme for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because it doesn't matter. No, that's not what I'm saying. We still have human responsibility. We still must take care of our bodies. It would not be wise to just drink Pepsi every single day instead of water. Like, hey, I heard that sermon. I'm making my own application. Love me some Pepsi. No, you should probably drink more water in 2024. But Jesus says you can't even do this little thing like add an hour to your life. Why do you worry about the rest? Now, implying there, life is the most important thing, and if you have life, you can do all the other things. But if you don't have life, you can't do any other things. And he says, you can't even add one hour by worrying. Now, this should be encouraging, right? We worry about all kinds of things, and we think by worrying, by being anxious, by being upset, that will somehow help. (laughs) No, it's probably doing worse, right? You get that upset feeling in your stomach. You get ulcers. You don't want to leave the house. You don't want to get a shower and get dressed. He's like, look, what, what are you helping by worrying? And so ask God to help you to not worry. And because he is sovereign over life and death, specifically yours, you don't have to worry. He's in control. Now, I've been to two funerals over the last seven days. Uh, One was a a former elder that I served with at the Pendles Alliance Church. He was 80 or 81. And uh, it was was a beautiful funeral, a testimony to God's grace. And, And gospel was clearly proclaimed in a packed out room that you couldn't even get in if you were late, which I was. <laughs> and so I'm standing, looking at all the chairs. There was no chairs. People were standing in the back. I mean, it was a beautiful time to, to celebrate a life unto God's glory. And the other one was my neighbor, who I've been neighbors with since 2007 when I bought my house. And she was also in her 80s. And I was reminded that, friends, there is appointed a time where all of us are going to die and stand before the Lord. It is appointed to man once to die and then to face the judgment. And it is good for you to think about this. I know that no one wants to meditate on death. And if you do, you should probably get some counseling. Okay? I am open in 2024, so hit me up. But it is good for us occasionally to realize our mortality. It really is. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For the living will take it to heart. And the idea there is it is good to be reminded that we are mortal, we are not immortal, and we are 100% dependent on an other. And that other is God. But listen, if you're a Christian, that other is not just God, he's your father. And that's what I want to drive home to you. If God, this God, is your father, you have nothing to fear. He's a good father who loves you. And even death is a sweet gift to bring you unto himself. That sounds crazy, but that is biblical. The the death that we will all experience is a door that once we go through, we will never meet that enemy again. Because death has died in the death of Christ. That's the good news for the Christian. So verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, 
but let the male children live. Now notice here, their purpose in not obeying the most powerful man on the planet was that they feared someone more than him, God. Now, many of you have memorized Proverbs 1-7, and if you have, say it with me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline or instruction. Okay? We are, as Christians, to fear God. I think there is an appropriate fear, like when holding a loaded gun with the safety off, you should fear that thing. But even more so, the God who holds your very breath in his control, you should fear him more than a loaded gun with the safety off. But in addition to that fear, like fear and trembling, I'm so afraid my hands shake, fear is this reverential awe of God. It's like standing in the presence of utter greatness, such that you feel small. Why do we get, our, get out our phones when famous people are around? Because in some strange way, we realize we are smaller than them, okay? No one asks to take selfies with Chris Moran. <laughs> They're like, yo, there's Chris. Get me in the background just right, click, Instagram. No, but if LeBron James walked past and he's in the background and you're at Chipotle and he's in line, you're gonna be like, I'm in line with LeBron James. You know, and you're, you're doing selfies for your Instagram, okay? Imagine God. The source of all things, as Lewis would say, where all the beauty comes from, that's glory. Being the source, being bigger than all things, that's glory. And friends, we get to enter into that someday through this thing we fear so much called death. And so to fear God is to realize who he is and who we are utterly dependent on him for life and breath and everything else, and then live accordingly to his rules and standard. It's to say, I am a creature and you are the creator. My morality is twisted by sin. My view of the world is twisted by sin. Yours is right, and even if it contradicts my desires, I will align my desires to what you say in your word. That is to fear the Lord. It's to treat his word with such reverence and such respect that even though everything in you screams against it, you take the Lord and his word over the inward desires or everything from the outside pressing on you to do the opposite. That's to fear the Lord, to tremble at his word and to respect and obey it. For you not to fear the Lord is to say, yeah, I know the Bible says that and I know this is wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyway. That is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. You have no fear of disobeying God. You have no fear of not living according to his will. In some sense, you are saying, I am a God and my will shall prevail. And so friends, here, the reason the midwives did not do as this most powerful man on the planet at the time commanded them to do was they believed that God should be more respected and feared than this Pharaoh. And that's what motivated them. Sifra or Sifra and Pua, the names mean beautiful and fragrant flower or blossom. Beautiful names. Beautiful, fragrant, fragrant flower or blossom. Now, 
for me at this point, not to make reference and application to modern day abortion would be one, either irresponsible at best and cowardly at worst. And so, friends, this has direct application to our modern day abortion situation. I understand that in this room, a room of this size, there are no doubt women who've had abortions in here. And I know that that inner struggle and turmoil probably eats you alive. I, I know that before you become a Christian, your way of viewing the world and morality is not according to God's standard. I understand that. I even understand that as a Christian, you don't immediately have all of God's Word in correct ethical categories and all the applications of the various Scriptures nailed down as a new Christian. I understand that. If not, what would we need the command to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all I've commanded? My point is this. Everyone in here is on a spectrum of understanding God's Word and its applications. I know that there are some of you who came into Eternal City Church and you didn't think abortion was a problem. And as you stayed over years, you realized, oh, God's Word would say otherwise. And praise God, you chose to align your view with God's Word and not keep your old view. I praise God for that. And for some of you in here today, I imagine that's the same story. Some of you in here, when we bring this up, you think, oh, this is just a right-wing conservative church. No, that's put, put politics outside of this discussion right now. This is a biblical issue. Regardless of what political party you align yourself with, God has something to say about the death of infants in the womb or outside of the womb. Okay? What Pharaoh is asking these two women to do is what we would call either partial birth abortion or afterbirth abortion. And that was advocated by the governor of Virginia just a few years ago. You could still find the clips online. He basically said, yeah, a woman should be able to have a baby, and then her and her physician can decide what to do with it afterward. You look it up. And so th this is not uncommon in our day, but friends, God has something to say about this issue. And what would he say? Fear me and preserve life at all costs. That's what he would say. Now, for those of you in this room who've had an abortion, I want you to know there is forgiveness, mercy, grace, love, acceptance, and welcome in Christ. Welcome in Christ. I was just with uh, several pastors from the Northeast, and we were praying uh, last Monday and Tuesday that God would show up here in this city and do a mighty work. And in the middle of one of our prayer sessions, one of the pastors from New Jersey confessed with tears pretty much that before he was a Christian, he made his girlfriend get an abortion. And he asked for forgiveness. And he acknowledged that he was a murderer. And, 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 and the, the gut level feeling in the room changed. He's a pastor. So friends, here's my point. There is forgiveness if this is your history. You don't need to live in the guilt and shame and despair of doing something like this. You can move forward, and God can bless your future. You don't have to live in the past. With Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins such that 
This psalm is true. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What a beautiful promise that if this is your story, that this could be your story. As far as the east is from the west, which is a line that continues going, does he remove that sin from you if you've confessed it and asked him for forgiveness? Friends, there is great hope in Christ, always, for any sin. But we must call it sin. And we must never say that God is pleased with it or that he accepts it. And so, the verse that we read earlier as a congregation was intentional. So let's read it again and think about life in the womb. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Okay, speaking to God's omnipresence, omni, all, presence, presence. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Now look at verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, in the womb, being made in secret. By who? By who? God. God. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This talks about how, you know, you go from the size of a bean to fully formed bones and brain and eyeballs and hearing. You know, infants can hear through the, the wall of the mother's womb. You know that? It's amazing. And God is doing this. That's what the verse says. God is active in making, listen, every one of you in the womb. It's amazing that it's not just random or mother nature or chance. It's God actively at work on every single human being, made in his image. Friends, we should, we should just wonder at that. There is no human being that is born on this planet, whether in India or China or the United States, that God wasn't intricately weaving in their mother's womb. It's amazing. It's amazing. When I was being made in secret, Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's a metaphor for the womb. 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And here's our verse from earlier. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now this does raise a lot of questions. Like what happens to infants that die in the womb, either from miscarriage or from abortion? In my view, in my reading of Scripture, they go to be with Jesus, directly to be with Jesus. 
Okay? And, and one verse from memory that I could give you is when uh, people were bringing their infants to Jesus to be blessed, the disciples were like, hey, get those kids out of here. The, the Messiah doesn't have time for kids. And what was Jesus' reply? Let the little children come to me. Why? For to such belong the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty clear. And that's just one verse. I could bring more. And so we, we have hope even for our babies that didn't make it. And I'm on that list. We, we've, we've experienced miscarriage. It's crazy to me to think that I have a child in heaven that I'm going to meet someday. It's amazing to think about. Not out of existence, not gone forever, but just immediately into God's presence because of Christ. His person and work applied to that one that didn't even make it out of the womb. It's amazing. And so to every aborted baby, the same. So there is hope, even in this very dark reality that we live in, in 2024 in the United States. Now, I want you to ground this that I'm saying to you in theology and truth. Okay, we, we don't just believe because we believe. We believe because the Scripture speaks directly to something. And the clearer Scripture speaks to something, the more firmly we should hold on to it and stand on it. Okay? And so here, here is a very clear verse in Genesis. This is after Noah has landed and he's off the ark. And now the, the mandate that was given to Adam and Eve is now given to Noah and his three sons and their wives. You are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And look what he says. Noah, for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now look at this. For God made man in his own image. There it is. This is why this is such an important issue. And murder, you know, adult children or teenagers or adults, this is a big deal because it's the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God made man in his image. Male and female, he created him, created them in his image. And so when a child is taken in the womb or an adult is taken outside the womb, it's an assault on the image of God. That's the problem. There's the theological issue that underpins this practice. Friends, we are taking the image of God as if we were God. Remember earlier, only God has the power to take life and death. I remember I was, on the, I was in the hospital room with my grandmother, just a day or two later she passed away. And me being a pastor, she had a question for me. She was on machines that were keeping her alive. And she said, Chris, is it wrong for me to take the machines away Am I playing God? Basically was her question. If, if I remove the machines that are keeping me alive, if I tell them, turn them off, am I playing God? Is it wrong? 
And, and God made an answer come to mind. And I said, no, it's not wrong. Because, two, two reasons. One, prior to the invention of these machines, people died all the time without the machines. And two, if God wanted to keep you alive without the machines, he will. And so you're not playing God. You're leaving your life up to him to do with what he wills. And the point of that story is this. God is the one who should determine life and death, not us. We don't want to play God, friends, which is why it's wrong to take the life of another individual, whether they're inside the womb or outside the womb. We are playing God, and we are assaulting his image. Now again, there is forgiveness, and God is merciful and gracious, and he will receive even a mass murderer. He will, and he does. Yet, we must hold this biblical position for ourselves, and if God would allow us to influence others, we should influence others. Okay, now we have to move on. So, the Egyptian midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. Now look at their answer, verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come. So, Scholars are massively divided on this, okay? Here's my view, okay? And again, this is my view. This is my reading. I think God supernaturally intervened in this situation, and what they're saying is actually true. I think that before they could get there, there really was the birth of the children, and so they couldn't in secret kill the male children, but that was a grace to them because they wouldn't have done it anyway. Now, a lot of scholars read this as, well, they're just lying, and in this situation, it's either right or wrong to lie. You know, for the greater good, you can lie, or it was wrong, but they should have done it anyway to save the children. No, I I think this is actually them telling the truth. And Pharaoh doesn't say, that's ridiculous. What do you mean they give birth before? He could easily verify that. So I think it's true that God supernaturally intervened and allowed the Hebrew women to give birth quickly before that the midwives could come so they wouldn't have to make a choice to strangle or however they were going to kill the male children or not. The Hebrew women were more vigorous than the Egyptians, which also means these midwives must have delivered Egyptian babies too. So God dealt well with the midwives And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, the irony here must be pointed out, verse 21, okay? They didn't do the thing the Pharaoh wanted them to do. And so God even multiplied his, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, through the very ones that he wanted to bring death through. It's ironic. He blessed them so that they would even biologically disobey the Pharaoh. Isn't that awesome? And so God continues to 
bless the children of Israel in this foreign land, and they are multiplying and spreading out such that this Pharaoh sees them as a threat. Such a threat that we get verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, so all the Egyptians, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now it gets real. So now it's every Egyptian person is supposed to take part in this. Now we don't know if everyone did, but we do know that there was mass genocide of Hebrew children in result of verse 22. Now, many scholars point out the spiritual dimensions of this, and so I want to point out the spiritual dimensions as well, and then close. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? If you don't, what's happening is Adam and Eve have disobeyed. They've been tempted by the serpent who was inhabited by Satan or was Satan in a, in a serpent form. And the curse first is upon Satan. And the curse goes something like this. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And then he says, there's coming a seed of the woman who will crush your head. He says, you will strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And then if you remember, Adam and Eve have two children, right? Cain and Abel. And then Cain murders his brother Abel. And we know that Abel was probably of the good seed and the seed of the serpent was in Cain. But then another child is born. Who? Seth. And Eve's voice is, maybe it's this one. Maybe he'll be the one to crush the head of the serpent. But then we realize as Genesis unfolds, oh no, there, there is many people in this line. And then Noah comes and everyone else is wiped out. And maybe it's Noah. Maybe Noah will be the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. But no, Shem has children who has children who has children until Abraham comes. And then Abraham is promised, through you all the nations will be blessed. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And the 12 sons and their families make their way to Egypt because of famine. And they begin to multiply and fill Egypt until we get to where we are. Friends, this war between the seed of the woman and the evil spiritual seed of the serpent has been going on since the beginning, and it's still going on. Now, the good news is the seed of the woman has come 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, who did crush the head of the serpent, didn't he? On the cross, the ultimate heel was struck, and yet what looked like victory on the third day was actually massive failure and the crushing of the head of the serpent. And Satan was directly involved. You remember Satan entered Judas and probably was stirring up the crowds 
and the Roman soldiers and Pilate. He, he, Satan was all involved spiritually, behind the scenes, secretly. And friends, the same is going on here. Make no mistake that this Pharaoh is satanically inspired. Make no mistake that someone like a Hitler who wanted to destroy the Jewish people in massive amount was satanically inspired. Anyone who murders anyone else is satanically inspired, going directly against what God forbids. Friends, anytime you're tempted to lie, and you do, that is satanically inspired. Because Satan is a liar and the father of lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. And Jesus himself said, I am the truth. The truth will set you free, right? And so when we're tempted to lie and we give in, that's, that's satanic. And so it's not just murderers who are satanic. We are acting satanic when we sin. And yet the good news is there is one who never lied, who embodied truth in such a way where he said, I am truth who never sinned in our place, and who did ultimately crush the head of the serpent for us. And amazingly, at the end of Romans, Romans 16, Paul says to those Roman Christians, and by extension us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is gonna crush Satan through us. How's that gonna happen? Friends, it's as you're pulled out of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. It's as your mind is renewed, like Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. As your mind is renewed, you are reoriented, you are changed, you are given the gift of repentance to turn from falseness and false worldviews and false values to God and the living God. And then you begin to share this good news that has the power to save even the most lost. Those in deep darkness can see the brightness of God's saving light. And he uses you to do it. And every time someone is pulled out of darkness into light, Satan's head gets crushed. Friends, the strong man who has enslaved even us is now bound by this good news that we have to tell that the, the snake crusher has come and he's already won. And we should align with the winning king, not the usurping king. And so, as the story of Exodus unfolds, we will get to see the battle of the gods. Who is stronger? And if you've read it, you know who wins. But then, the people of God, and by extension, we are the people of God now, they're going to struggle to align their lives with this God who is other than them, meaning holy, way different than them, sees reality different, values different things, and seeks them to live in such a way that without his enabling is impossible. And so the Jewish people will discover God in the wilderness, the wilderness of Sinai, where he meets with them physically, cloud by day, fire by night, lightning, earthquake, his voice. He shows up really. And they struggle 
to walk with him. And they fail epically. And then they repent. And he saves them. And they fail epically. And then they repent. And he saves them. Does that sound like the Christian life? It does. Friends, I'm really excited for you and for us to be going through this book because it is an Old Testament picture of the Christian life, yet we're on the other side of the cross, and grace and mercy and peace is where we should be living. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Forgive as you have been forgiven. You've heard it was said, if someone takes your eye, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's not the way we are to live anymore. So we're in a new kingdom, and we live differently as citizens of this kingdom because we have a new king. And so we're going to celebrate that, friends, we have been rescued from a Pharaoh-like figure who is spiritual, who desires nothing but death from us and for us. And now we are in the kingdom of light and life with the king of light and life. And he is our father. And we have been brought into this kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. And because of him, we have hope that even staring death in the face, we don't have to fear. Because death will be a door that brings us into life everlasting and the presence of our father and the presence of our big brother, Jesus. To live empowered by the spirit forever to never sin again. Can you imagine to never be tempted again and never fall again? Friends, that's our future. So let's rejoice and sing and celebrate that God has not left us to ourselves, but he has intervened through the person and work of Jesus by someone sharing the good news with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty grace. Father, we thank you that your word does not hide the darkness and the challenges that we face. It is real. It is plain. It is understandable. God, we thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves in our mess, in our sin. You saved us. You called us to yourself. You washed us. You cleansed us. You've given us the righteousness of Jesus as if we've lived the perfect life of Christ. And you look at us in Jesus, not in our sin. Father, I pray for each person. You, you alone know where they're at. You alone know their needs. And so I pray meet those needs. I pray God meet with us in this new year of 2024 in such a way that we are strengthened and encouraged and emboldened and empowered to live this life with you and for you. May we fear you by your enabling such that we reverence you and walk in a way that pleases you. Help us. We need you. And even as we sing, oh God, would you come and be present and meet with us as we take communion and remember the body broken and the bloodshed of Jesus, would you come and meet with us? Bring your healing power and grace as only you can when you are present. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could stand, we're going to sing. Please hold your communion elements until we're done singing, and then when we're done, I'll come out and I'll lead us all in taking communion together as one church.
So let us end our time of worship on a note of hope. Because of Jesus, friends, we have life and life eternal. And so in this temporary time in between today and your funeral, friends, this is the only darkness you're going to experience if you're a Christian. And you have an arrow that continues forever of light and life and peace and ever-increasing joy and happiness. It's amazing. Because of Jesus. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his defeating of Satan, sin, and darkness, and winning us unto himself, calling us unto himself. Friends, what you hold is a visual, physical representation of Jesus' body broken and bloodshed. We believe he is present with us by his spirit as we worship, and we want to remember what he's done for us every single week. And so as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so let us once again say Jesus has died for me and Jesus has died for us together as we take communion. So let us worship by taking the bread and the cup together. Father, we thank you for this physical remembrance this act of worship that we get to participate in as your church, week by week by week. Father, may the goodness and the power of the gospel never be lost on us. That once we were lost, but now we are found in Christ. Once we were spiritually dead, but now we are alive in Christ. Once we were under your condemnation, but now we are free and free indeed. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. Father, may we live in this newness of life. Continue to work on us, Father. Don't leave us where we are today. Bring us further in our knowledge and understanding of you and in the way we live out the directives of your word that we might glorify you and do good to others, bringing glory to you all the days of our lives until we see you and are with you. God, go with us now as we proceed into the cold. Give us grace. Pray protect everybody as they go. And would you bring us back to worship again next Sunday? In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Have a great week, everybody.